preachers know they're called to preach because they love to preach the word. Amen. You uh, you know you're called to preach and teach when uh, you have those God has put those kind of giftings because you because uh, uh, you love to teach God's word. I love to teach God's word. I um uh, I uh, all the when I was in Bible college all the what they used to call the young preacher boys were all uh, looking for opportunities. Man, they were you know they were hoping somebody would say hey you go preach here okay I'll do it. yeah so because there's nothing like preaching the word of God and. Uh, so it's, uh, it's such a wonderful blessing. I wanted to uh, say again about um, and, and tell you when Pastor Lee was talking about Young Faith in Christ, I've been involved in that ministry for over 10 years. Um, I was the director for several years, work now as a volunteer skate park manager, uh, and uh, been a volunteer, uh, been a mentor. And I want to say one thing about what he said about the, when it comes to mentoring. I have a degree in counseling. I am a licensed professional counselor. Uh, and I'll tell you right now that um, that's, that's all wonderful, but that's kind of like a piece of paper on the wall. Okay? The best counselors have no degrees, and, um, and God gives them the giftings to be able to speak into people's lives in ways that uh, makes a difference for them. Now, I you can go over and talk to people that YFC, you talk to where I work at the Legacy Ranch out here, and, and, and those people would say that I say that over and over again. As a counselor, yes, I can make a little bit of difference in someone's life, but that's not the, that's not the person that changes the life of individuals, especially kids. That's not. Counselor doesn't change anybody's life. Oh, man, why did I go people? No, I didn't. Uh, you know, they can make a difference, but they're not the one who makes the biggest difference. Okay, the, for, for example, out of the ranch or YFC, the person that makes a difference is the person who's there for those children all the time and, uh, and, and is just there, okay, and shows that they care. Okay, and they, they are there and shows that they care. And so that's what changes the life of individuals. If I wasn't at the Legacy Ranch, several key, very good people that function as substitute, for example, kind of mothers and fathers for these boys makes the difference in their life, not me. Okay, and uh, I understand that, that that's how that works. You would be surprised at how greatly you will make a difference in the life of some young person if you, uh, uh, if you would be involved in, in any kind of mentoring. And if you can't do it, you know somebody else would be a good mentor, then put that bug in their ear, all right? Uh, I used to work for YFC. I now volunteer there all the time, but I'll tell you that uh, I will say that YFC, the two big ministries around here that I think are making the difference, and especially in our county here and the surrounding counties, are Young Face in Christ and the um, and the Pregnancy Resource Center. Okay, they're making some huge differences in the lives of young people uh, in, in what they do. Uh, young Faith in Christ, just having the Bible club, by the way, we are probably the only ministry, I've never heard of one, okay, never. We are probably the only ministry like that in the entire country. I've not heard of another ministry that has the number or the amount of Bible clubs in schools than, than Young Faith in Christ, all right? That's, uh, that's kind of an amazing thing that, that, that God has even blessed us. And even after COVID, I was talking to the new director and uh, we're already back again into all the schools in Farmington uh, School District, moving back into Central North County, uh, back over at Bismarck, um, and, and so moving back into these other schools. So both of those programs are, are vital and very, very good. So, but regardless of that, you don't have to be part of Young Faith in Christ or 
or some other ministry, God will lead people into your life that you will mentor, kids or otherwise, and that's how discipleship really works. And that's, um, that's the process of how that works. So that's just a, a very good ministry. I want to say and say and witness to what he said about uh, mentoring and how powerful that is. Uh, all of us in our lives should have somebody that's further along than us, that mentors us, And somebody who is, and somebody who is not quite as far along that we're mentoring. Okay, at least those two people. We should have at least those two people on our own. Somebody who's further along than us that we go to, and mentors us, and encourages us, and we should, and teaches us, and we should have people that uh, we have in our life that we're mentoring and we're helping. Okay, so so that's that's really Jesus's process, and even what he did with the disciples. That's how he did it. That's the that's the process that takes place. So um, remember, uh, Young Faith in Christ and other ministries like that because of what they're doing and their impact in the in kind of the local community, right? So we're going to go to Colossians chapter three, verse twelve, and I'm going to go backwards a little bit. I'm going to review some stuff because it's been a couple of weeks, uh, and then I'm going to move forward, maybe further than I'm going to read, but I'm just going to read uh, up to verse seventeen. It says, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another, if anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But above all these things put on love, which is the bond of perfection, and let the peace of God rule in your heart which you also, you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and in spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Let's go forward in prayer. Father, thank you for your word, and uh, may your word make a difference in our lives. And uh, Father, as I teach your word, I pray that you would just use me, speak into the lives of your people, and help us, Lord, that we would take your word, and as Pastor Lee said, we would not just hear it, but we'd be doers of your word. Uh, Lord, it is true that it would be better off for us to read one verse and do it than a thousand verses and do none of them. And I ask you, dear God, that you would just help us, that we would take your word what you're speaking to a heart about that we need to change in our own personal lives, we would listen to you and obey. Thank you for we have the ability to obey through the Lord Jesus Christ, as we'll talk about today. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Now, um, I'm going to go back early and kind of do a kind of a quick review about some of the things that we talked about over, uh, over in the book of Colossians here. And remember that Colossians is the book that talks about Jesus being the head. Okay, he's the head of the church. And remember that um, this is important because the church in this Roman world, there in the uh, area of Turkey where uh, Colossae uh, was, in this area here, all kinds of, and in fact, this is in basically every church just about the Apostle Paul was, um, would minister in in any way. Uh, all kinds of different philosophies would come along. We had Greek philosophy that was there. And um, Greek philosophy, and I won't go into that just for time's sake, but Greek philosophy was affecting the church, right? We had uh, 
uh, traditional Judaism that was affecting the church that said that um, you had to be a Jew and follow all the laws. They had Jewish mysticism, which was a variance of Judaism that was into the church there. There were, you know, uh, hundreds, literally, in the Roman world of different pagan religions and belief systems and all kinds of things that were affecting the, uh, the Christians at this time. And they were being assailed by this every day, all the time, in the culture, when they walked around, when they were in the market, when they were at home, their friends, whatever they were doing, whatever their business work was, they were being assailed by all these different belief systems. And uh, one of the things that I noticed about um, false beliefs, okay, and kind of things about us as Christians that we need to kind of pay attention to when we do this here, is that people who have false beliefs and, uh, and uh, anti-Christian beliefs and the truth, they're sure of what they believe, okay? They're sure of it. They preach it with complete confidence. And I think we as Christians often are unsure of what we believe. We don't preach it with the same level of confidence, now, one of the reasons I said before that we kind of don't do that is because of a uh, thing that Satan has done in the culture here. And he set this up for the last probably 50 years or longer. Actually, this goes all the way back into the, quite frankly, uh, into the 1800s. So for over a century. And that is, is that Satan attempts to try to make, number one, the gospel irrelevant. But especially in the last, I think, you know, 50 years or so in America... Uh, he has made it where he has put it in the minds of the lost to tell Christians that if we are giving the, the gospel, that we're being um, rude or we're being uh, uh, too, that we're, we have to put it in the minds, as uh, uh, a guy named Chesterton over in England said, that you need to, you don't need to apologize for anything that we do. And this is back in the early 1900s, but Chesterton said, you don't need to apologize for anything except for being a Christian. And he's put it in our minds and, and, and people and the intellectual world, especially again in the colleges, and you know how I feel about the, the humanistic philosophy in college, because we talk about it a lot, okay, put it in our minds that somehow we as Christians need to apologize for whatever they say about us, okay? We need to apologize for everything. We need to apologize for being Christians. We need to apologize, and this is something where we need to really know both our history and Christianity. We need to apologize for all kinds of things that didn't even happen. Okay? Historically, they didn't even happen. A lot of the stuff that Christians get accused of did not happen. I'm sorry. They don't even know history well enough to know what was going on or taking place. Or it was a variance of the truth, and Christianity may have been involved in some level or another. I'm just talking about the worldly version, not the true church of Christ, was involved, and they expect us to apologize for it, all right? So, for example, okay, we could use a million examples, but um, let's just talk about, you know, Christians, uh, everybody brings up, and this comes up all the time, that somehow or another, you know, with the Crusades, the Crusaders were, you know, going over, and they were taking over Jerusalem back in the, you know, the 1200s and, uh, and the 1300s that uh, several different crusades went over to attempt to win back Jerusalem, right? And they use that as an example of, and some of the horrors that, uh, that the Europeans did over in the Middle East was, was, was bad. Yes, it was, right? Some of the things that they did. However, listen carefully to this, all right? And something that they need to know. Remember this phrase, and I say this to everybody. 
No one in history of the world ever has been forced to be a Christian. Ever. You cannot do that. That is impossible. You cannot force somebody to be a Christian. You can make them carry a cross. You can make them go into a church. You can make them kneel. You can make them uh, uh, pretend to pray. But no one has ever forced anyone to be a Christian. Number two, simple principle that they would understand uh, and they would apply to their own life. Everybody that claims to be something isn't that. Everybody who makes a claim to be something isn't necessarily that. And that's going on a lot in the world. What I mean by that is everybody that claims to be a Christian isn't necessarily a Christian. So when the Crusaders were wearing those crosses on them, going around and doing things that were very much maybe anti-Christian, didn't mean that they were Christians at all. Okay? Or they were even doing what God wanted them to do. A lot of politics and stuff was going on. But we can talk about that kind of historically. But there's plenty of times where I hear them say stuff that just, is just patently false. And they say and they put it on us as a tag as Christians. And the truth of the matter is we don't deserve it because we weren't involved in that way. That wasn't us. That wasn't who we were. And we're expected to apologize for why. Okay? And a lot of stuff, we need to know history, we need to know God's word, and young people, by the way, one of the best things you can do is learn history. Um, they're trying to destroy history because history tells the truth, the good and bad and the ugly of it, they very much in our culture right now want to destroy history for that reason, all right? So uh, the thing about it is, is that we don't need to apologize for being Christians anymore, Okay? We don't need to apologize for being Christians anymore. And I'm ashamed that I fell into that, I think, where I felt ashamed in a sense of being a Christian and felt like I had to apologize for a lot of stuff. And the sad thing is, most of it we were expected to apologize for wasn't even us. It wasn't even the truth about us or who we were or how we were involved. And we have to know the truth and we have to know history enough to know what was going on. Uh, we get wonder. I've even heard... Uh, that, um, that the, uh, for, for example, uh, that uh, Christianity was the cause of what happened in Nazi Germany and all that and, you know, all kinds of things and, you know, that are just simply not the case. Now, uh, yes, the church was involved in there and the compromise of the church made a huge difference in there, but that wasn't because, I'm sorry, what Hitler did wasn't because of Christian philosophy, okay, and, and true teachings. <laughs> no, he couldn't have been more anti-Christian. In fact, the church involvement in that, and Pastor Lino were talking about, was their compromise to what he taught and believed. All right? So we get all kinds of things. We don't need to apologize for who we are. We need to know our faith well, and we can stand on that with confidence. All right? And by the way, God's word is powerful enough. People question God's word, and that used to intimidate me. It doesn't anymore. But you know what? In my lifetime, since I became a Christian, this book has never failed me once. Ever, ever. I have failed every day, but this book has never failed me. It's always proven itself to be true. Historically accurate, doing exactly what it claims to do in the life of individuals. So the Christians there at Colossae, though, were being ran over by all these different philosophies. And they were new, and their faith had not been tested. And so because of that, they were having all kinds of issues, and they were intimidated. And they were beginning to compromise back into all of these different belief systems. And that's another thing, again, where the, I'm, I'm just amazed at how this book here very much mirrors what's going on in our culture today, uh, almost like it was written for America in, you know, in, the, in the 2020s, 
uh, exactly what's taking place in our culture today and what's going on. One of the things that the church wants to do is the church is tempted to compromise and kind of take on some of these beliefs and, and some of these, uh, of these ideas when we do not have to do that. I'm sorry, but the truth is, is that even mentioned in this book here, that when we come to things like, um, uh, like uh, equality among, you know, for men and women or among races, the gospel was the place that created equality. Yeah, the gospel, not their belief system, which they want to take that on, but somehow they can create equality. Okay, they, they brag about the fact that they claim they are. The gospel created equality. And the Apostle Paul said this in several places where the gospel was the place where all of us were made equal in Christ. Okay, equality. Maybe different places or levels of authority. Okay, maybe different people that have different offices or roles uh, that they would fall into. As we'll talk about when we get into the family and the business at the end of, of this book here. But it is the gospel that creates the equality that this nation needs. Okay? Always has been and, and, and always will. So regardless of the place, we need to not compromise on God's word or apologize to anybody for what God says. Because his word is true and we can always prove it to be true. Okay? It's proven. I told my daughter here, she was asking about, uh, she's trying to work on her own faith. I, I, you know, I told her, I said, no one, I'll make this bold claim here, no one who has ever picked up this book and studied it with an open heart, who was an unbeliever, has not been saved. <laughs> That's why Satan doesn't want this book in the hands of the unbeliever, because if they pick it up, and their goal is to truly study it with the open heart, uh, they would, they will be saved. I give you a couple. You know, you can talk about Lee, uh, Lee Strobal, or uh, you talk about Josh McDowell in my generation, and some other people who went to the Bible to prove it wrong, and when they studied it with an open heart enough, they were saved by what they found in God's Word. Right? So it's more than powerful to do what it needs to do. So the Apostle Paul has to come in with these Christians are being intimidated by what's going on around them, and he has to set them straight. And what I like about this is, is that I love that he always goes back to the simplicity, okay, simplicity. Jewish mysticism, Greek learning, the Greeks and all their philosophies, not very simple, okay? But he goes back to the simplicity of Christ, at least starts there. Now, the Bible's not simple, but it starts off with some simple principles. So he starts off here with a very simple principle, and he says, Christ is head of everything. He's head, he is the he is the king of kings and lord of lords, he's head of the universe, he's head of the church. Christ is head. If you start with that, then we can figure everything else out. So with the church here that was struggling with who should have preeminence, what we should do with all these crazy religions and belief, he talks about Christ being the head. And as he goes through there, he talks about their faith in Christ and how they were saved. And remember that in that passage there, he was dealing with this idea, now remember this, how I'm saved is the same process of how I grow. And this is a mistake that the Galatians made, and several other times in the scripture this mistake was made. And by that what I mean is, is the process that saved me is the process that I would use for growth to take place. So since I was saved by faith, and there's nothing I can do about it, but I only trusted in Christ to save me, 
So my growth only happens through Christ as I yield to him. Okay? It is not through works. It is not through uh, intellectual, uh, through thinking my way to being a better Christian. Those don't happen. As I yield to Christ, and as more of Christ is in me, then I grow as a Christian because of that yielding process that takes place there. What did I do? When I was a young boy, I yielded to Christ, and I was saved. So as a Christian, every day I yield to Christ, and I grow. Okay, so those processes happen exactly the same. So he goes through here and talks about the preeminence of Christ and the thing that the world hates. You can believe in God all you want to, even though there's a huge push to be totally atheist. Um, uh, you can believe in God all you want to as long as you do not mention the word Christ. The world hates the word Jesus Christ. Okay, they hate it. They do not want that word to be spoken. And that would be because it bothers the forces, uh, the, uh, the forces of evil. And he talks about us being reconciled to Christ. And he talks about how that he was sacrificing his service for Christ early on. And then he goes into, I think the last time we dealt with all three of these, we talked about that philosophy does not save us, but Christ does. And legalism and following rules won't save us, but Christ does. And then he talks about how that our carnality can be, can be taken off, the sinful self can be taken off, and Christ can be put in its place. Okay, and that can happen. And then that kind of leads us up here. But notice, it's Jesus, it's Jesus, it's Jesus. It's the Lord, it's the Messiah, it's Him that makes the difference. It's all about who He is. No matter where you go in the New Testament, you'll find that it's about what Jesus does and how that He gives us the ability to be able to do His will. Now, I mentioned this before, but I think this is something that happens. If you've been a Christian longer than five minutes, okay, you've had this experience, right? I, I know I'm supposed to do something. I try to do it. I fail miserably. And so, learning from that, I try to do it again and fail miserably. And try to do it again and fail miserably until I finally go to God and say, I can't do it. I can't do it. And the humility of surrendering to him and Christ then gives me the grace to be able to do what I couldn't do under my own power. That's the process of growth taking place. It's really kind of that simple. Okay? Uh, the problem is, is that when do we get to the place where we make that yielding? So carnality is, is, is talked about here beginning in, in chapter 3. Now right here, I want to make a switch over and make a point here because this deals with something that every pastor has had to struggle with in their, in their teaching of people. Now listen to this. Right. One of the biggest problems in the church is this issue here. You have one person who says... I can sin all I want to because I'm saved and God has taken care of me and it doesn't matter because my sins are covered. Okay. And basically they live totally like the world. Antinomianism. Yeah. yeah. Whatever they're living totally like the world. Right? And then you got the other side is the Christian who goes, man, I sin, but I don't want to sin. Am I going to hell? Okay. And uh, pretty much you could divide, um, even within the church, people, many people kind of struggling with that. And as a pastor, if I go way over here into this realm and I then uh, excuse their sin because Christ does cover it, I'm kind of in theological error. And if I go over here and every time somebody sins, kind of send them to hell because of their sin, then I... Myself personally, I think I've gone into another realm of heresy. 
Okay? So no matter which side I kind of go to, we're kind of stuck with this of attempting to teach this principle. I think is, in my opinion, it's been one of the hardest principles to attempt to what God's Word says about this principle for Christians. In, in my any time that I pastored or taught, this is the most difficult thing to teach. Because what needs to be said to this person is different than what needs to be said to this person. Okay? And, uh, and, and it's very difficult. But actually, as I was studying, this passage helps me. The book of Colossians helps with this. I want you to notice something. In the first two chapters, all right, he's talking about an either-or situation when it comes to our faith, okay? In the sense that we are either saved or we're lost, and when we're lost, the wickedness in our hearts is keeping us in, 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 as enemies of Christ, and when we're saved... Okay, then we're put into a new position of righteousness and holiness. Okay, it's an either-or kind of statement. So, in verse 3, chapter 3 here, verse 1, he makes a switch. And he was talking about how that only Christ can save me. Kind of an either-or kind of way of thinking here. I'm either saved or I'm not. Okay, and then he talks about, so, now that you are saved, he says, If you then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God, set your mind on things above and not on things of the earth. For you died, and your life was hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Now, when that switch happens, he begins to talk differently here, I notice. Okay? He wasn't talking this way before. Before, he was talking, you're in Christ, you're not in Christ. Okay, Christ is the head, Christ is not the head. Very kind of either or. Now he starts talking as if the Christian has a choice. Okay? So what's this? So he said, Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry, because of these things the wrath of God is coming uh, upon the sons of disobedience, which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. Okay, so he says to them, now he's talking as if the Christian has a choice. He orders the Christian here to do something. He says, you put these things on, all right? And that statement right there could be a, uh, that could be a commentary of American life, okay? Of this, those couple of verses there. That could be a commentary of, of American life in, in 2020. In fact, uh, I think we're doing worse than them. Okay, but, uh, but it could be a commentary of who we are. Then he says again, a choice here. He says, but now you put, uh, now you yourselves put, uh, are to put off all these things also. So what I notice here is, is that the Christian may have put off these other things, but here's some things that Christians struggle with. And I would say this is true. Okay, that the next phase is if I have, if I'm not uh, going out to the temple and, and, um, doing evil things or sacrificing or temple prostitutes or, or whatever evil is going on, he says here, but here's something that would happen to Christians. How about a problem with anger? How about wrath? Okay? How about um, a blasphemy or a language or something? So another level that the Christians needed to deal with that they were still, uh, that they were still having trouble with because of their emotions in their mouths, okay? And by the way, I would say that, you know, a person may that there are phases of, of Christian growth, and they would be dealing with these things. Now, he says again there, an action put this off, okay? Since you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man who is renewed in the knowledge uh, according to the image of him who has created him, 
where there is neither. I love this here. Here's the real woke, whatever that means. And everybody figured that out. It only has something to do with being um, totally where everybody is equal. And even though they don't really do that. I'm sorry. So, Jason. Where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, skipping, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. Okay? Is in all. Okay? So, this is where he says we are all equal before Christ. Now, um, he says this, again in action. He says, therefore, as elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so also you must do. Above, above all, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. Okay, now he's going to give some more commands here, but I'm not going to go further until I make this point. So listen carefully, right? The first thing that the Bible tells us that we need to do, which would be very helpful for the church right now and for all of us, is to make our calling an election sure. Okay? Am I or am I not a Christian? Am I or am I not to make sure that I have, I have settled that? If you go back to, even in this area here, you go back to the uh, time of some of the very early, early revivals, so... Um, a uh, uh, it, go back in the 1800s when they would the writings that they would do of revivals that happened at that time is is very much our kind of you know my sinner's prayer when I got saved I confessed was about five minutes and a, a drastic impact on my life but you know when I uh, uh, when when I was saved it was a short time but one of the things I think is interesting about the revivals that I've read about is that in some cases they would travail for a while over whether or not they were saved. They would pray for a while, sometimes for several hours before they kind of came uh, to that kind of a, of a conclusion, that they really kind of had it settled in their hearts and minds that it was taking place. Now, I'm not saying everybody's experience needs to be like that, but one of the things that I appreciate about those revivals and what happened and, and the way that it happened was the fact that they were really settling the either or. Okay, they weren't kind of halfway there. They were getting it down that they were truly saved and they were truly going to live the life that was being put in front of them. Okay? And that they were really going to live it. They weren't gonna, it wasn't going to be kind of a halfway, kind of a easy to jump into kind of thing. Alright? Now, I don't want to say by that that if you got saved in 30 seconds, which you can be, that, that, that there's something wrong with your salvation. But I do say that we, if we're going to not struggle as Christians, we've got to get it settled that we are totally submitting to the Lordship of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he is told we are we're going to be total Christians. Okay? And I think that in the theology of today, one of the things that's happening in the church is, is that settling is not taking place among the people. Okay? That settling that if you're going to do this. You're giving it all up. Now, here is the, oh, I hate to say this, but true, the advantage of persecution. The advantage of persecution is that the persecuted church, if they decide to be a Christian, they got that figured out. Okay? If you're in China and you choose to be a Christian, you've settled the either or. Because you either are not, because you don't want to be persecuted, or you are, because you know you need Jesus. 
In North Korea, they settled the either or. Because they do horrible things like roll over you with steamrollers. Okay, you settled the either or. The reason that the persecuted church is much more powerful than the, unfortunately, that the American church and the Western church is because persecution forces them into the either or. Now, once we get into the either or, and I'm totally committed to Christ, then that makes the next step much easier. Because then the next step is, once I've totally committed, okay, what has happened then is, now he starts talking like I had a choice. I didn't have a choice when I was in my wicked, sinful self. I could not sin. And my heart was full of sin. But after I am completely saved, then he speaks as if there is a choice. Because I'm free. Okay, I can choose. I want you to notice that, that kind of that choice is there then. That's the difference. Can a Christian sin? Absolutely. Uh, one of the wonderful things about the Bible is you go back to the Old and the New Testament, and God picked people who sinned all the time, yet used them in a great way. Okay? But the difference is, is that they had a strong Christian life when they settled it, that this is exactly what was happening, where they were at, and what needed to uh, you know, take place. The either-or was totally settled in their own heart and mind. Now, the church will be strengthened when we settle that. I'm either going to serve God or I'm not. That is the goal of my life, okay, to serve Him. Okay, I'm totally committed to this thing, Christianity. This is something I'm going to pick up. And the problem with the Colossians where they were there, the problem with the Colossians is, is that they were at a place where, uh, they could be a Jewish mystic, they could be, talk, talk uh, you know, have Greek philosophy, they could, they, could, they could do all these different things, and still hopefully live the Christian faith. And the Apostle Paul says, if Christ is the head, he, he gets everything. He wins it all. He wins all of you. You don't get to just um, kind of halfway be there. As the church moves into the next several years, whatever's going to happen, I think we're in the end times. I myself believe that Jesus will come back very quickly. Or that the tribulation will start and... You know, we'll, we'll live through seven years of however that's going to go. We'll live through seven years of whatever. Okay? It's going to be pretty, pretty rough. But regardless of what happens, all right, the Christian church desperately needs to, desperately needs to um, get the either or settled. Especially here in America. We must get that settled. Because until we do, we can't move on to the second phase here where he talks about living powerful life in Christ. After that is settled, then he says, you have the choice. He says, take off. He says, put on. He says to do different things. Now I choose to do what it is I can do. So what do we say? I say to this Christian over here, have you really, or this person claims to be a Christian, have you really got your Christian faith settled? I don't think so. Because if you really get your Christian faith settled, you don't kind of go, I can do whatever I want. Okay, kind of attitude. Nope. Lordship is lordship. Every one of us as Christians is as feelings and desires we don't want. Or if we knew we're opposite, we may have wanted them, but we knew the opposite of what Christ said he wants us to do. Lordship says that I will do exactly what God tells me to do 
and by His grace every day, I'll do what my Lord wants me to do, not what I want to do. And I see young people today, and I think one of the things, and, and well, all of us, but I guess since I minister mostly amongst young people, I see young people today struggling with that because they're used to a culture that tells them they can be whatever they want and do whatever they want. No matter how much it's against God's word, right? Nope. Lordship says that Jesus is Lord. And anybody here who's been a Christian for very long has lived maybe with years with desires or wanting something, you know, whether it was, you know, where we struggle with something in our lives, maybe living with it for years, where we're submitting daily to the Lordship of Christ to those things. Something, maybe even something that's not necessarily a sin, but God, we want it, but God obviously does not want us to have it. And we have to submit to the Lordship of Christ in that. Jesus isn't truly Lord in your life or my life until we start doing what he says, not what we want. Okay? Now, I know that's kind of blind, spider monkey obvious, but he's not truly Lord in our life, okay, until I start obeying and doing what he wants me to do rather than what I want to do. That's lordship. It's easy to be a Christian when I don't think that God is asking me to do something that's hard. But when God has asked that young person to give up a relationship with somebody that's not good for them, okay, for example, they're dating, and you do it, that's lordship. When I don't compromise at work, or, you know, uh, I, uh, I don't give in to that temptation, or I, whatever, you know, there's a, a, a million examples of that. Lordship is lordship. When you do, and I do, what God tells me to do, then it's truly lordship. And folks, the world here in America and the church couldn't be more oblivious to that. They don't understand it. They just could not be more oblivious to that. Okay? Now, we can go over here as he talked about the things that he wanted them to do. And I want you to notice in the next phase here. Right? So he starts off with philosophy and teaching, and then he then moves into practical Christian living on the inside of the heart. Okay? And then he moves outward. So notice throughout the book, we start inward in the spirit, figuring out who Christ is. We move outward, and we move into, there in chapter 3, we start moving into the idea of um, uh, putting off Things that are evil and, and putting on things that are good and righteous and holy. Okay, making that switch there. And then he moves over. So he's talking here about being humble and meek. And, uh, and he talks about long-suffering and bearing with people and forgiving one another. And by the way, Christ was the ultimate example of all of that. Because nobody was more abused than him for who didn't deserve to have the abuse they had. Okay. Uh, and uh, forgiving other people. And putting on love, and notice that all of those are character, are who I am in character, right? Who I am in character. Now, I can't notice the outward move, so it goes from the spirit, goes to my character, and then it's going to go to practical living here, which we'll talk about next time, but the practical living of what we do. Notice the outward flow. Now, listen carefully. The problem with the church is, when it is carnal and weak, is even if it attempts to try to make a move of change in how it lives, it tries to go from the outside in. Okay? I tell everybody 
uh, a, a congregation. Uh, the problem with going from the outside in is it creates legalism. Okay, so I tell everybody that if you're a Christian, then you dress a certain way, or you look a certain way, or you do a certain thing. Well, the problem with that is, is that even if that, whatever that is that you're supposed to be doing, is truly righteous before God, it is still legalism because it went from the outside in. And how Christianity works is from the inside out. As Christ is head of me, then, and he changes my heart and makes me a, a new person because I'm saved, then I can put off the deeds of the flesh by yielding to him. I can take on the character of Christ by yielding to him. And therefore, I will practically live out the kind of Christianity I should in my home and in business. We'll see in a few minutes. So, or, or next week. So what happens is, is that the inside is where it must start, and the outside is where it flows. Okay? The inside is where it starts, and the outside is where it flows out to. You want to get become a better Christian? For the moment, I'm not saying we shouldn't do certain things or not do certain things. We need to do that. But for the moment, jump all the way back to lordship and headship at the beginning of this, chapter, of this book here. Talk about lordship or headship. At least one thing about the earlier Christians is, is that they realized that that was where it started. If the church would settle that now, we would begin to be a huge force in America again if we would settle lordship ourselves. We're demanding, or we want to see people saved around us, but we're not willing to make the sacrifice of lordship into our own lives and our hearts on an individual basis. We have to do that first. And then, from the inside out, character changes. Because if I am submitting to Christ, his character is taking over me, and, uh, and, and I'm becoming more like him, and then I'm ready to practically live out um, his, his will and what he wants. Right? And, uh, and, and, and practically ready to live out the things that he wants me to be able to live out here. So it moves to that outward place. I can't be meek. I can't be long-suffering. I can't be anything without the character of Christ. I can't do those things if Christ is not Lord of my life. It's impossible. But after that, then we'll see here as we move into the most practical phase of this here. After that, then I have the ability to make a difference in the world around me. And by the way, we'll see next week that, that the Apostle Paul was asking something I learned about this time frame here in the Roman world where to do the things that he says here in the Christian home and Christian business with slaves and moms and dads and, and husbands and wives to do some things that was totally opposite of what was really in the culture. Because in Roman culture, for example, the father had literally complete control over his family. He could have them executed. I'm talking husband, wife, kids, uh, slaves. He was completely in control of, of the family. And he asked here, we'll see next week, he asked them to do some radical changes to how they lived their lives here and that the church would be radically different than what's going on around them. Now I'm going to close with this and make this statement. Listen, right? I am learning now that it is impossible for us to be good Christians if we're not going to be counterculture. <laughs> Okay. Uh, we will, with no, uh, first of all, I don't think it was ever true that we couldn't be counterculture, but it's impossible for us to be Christians if we're not going to be counterculture today. Okay. We're going to have to be radically different 
than the world around us. Because the world is preaching the philosophy and demanding and shutting off everybody else that has other different beliefs. Okay, we've got to be radically different and be ready to, to meet that. Or they run right over the top of us with what they're believing and what they're teaching. God's word works every single time. It works every single time. We just have to take the time to humbly apply it as he commands us to do. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Uh, I think serious uh, times are coming, Lord. Um, it was always true in the spiritual sense that being a Greek Christian, I guess, in the past and doing your will was, we could almost make it like a choice. We could choose. We could be halfway Christians thinking we were getting away with it. Well, you're going to bless us, I believe, in the future here. I just see the waves. I, as Lee and I were talking this week, you know, I, I have to tell relatives of mine things, and they ask me about things, and I have to tell them that, um, that the future does not look great, except in Jesus. But as far as the world is concerned, things are happening that are, in some cases, fulfillment of prophecy, and, um, you know, it's just, it isn't going to look good. Lord, give us the grace that we would be able to get that either or settled and then yield every day to you so that you can use us to make a difference in the culture around us. And by the way, Lord, I've said that kind of in different ways, maybe every week, every time I preach, but you know, that has been happening. I see Christians around me that were not very serious starting to get serious, so you are working in our lives. Do more of the work in my life. Help me that I be more and more serious for you, more and more yielding to you, and help every brother and sister here do the same. Lord, so that you can use us in a powerful way. There are perilous times in the future coming, but there's also exciting times coming, and what you're going to do, and you're already doing. Thank you for that. Help us to get those things settled so we can be effective for you. In Jesus' name. Right.